It's the Mason Williams special on the Paul Leslie Hour, featuring an interview with guitarist, composer, and writer Mason Williams, along with musical selections. We're going to play an excerpt, by permission, of Mason Williams' song, Destinations of the Sun. This is one of his Caribbean samba songs, originally recorded in 1992. And then we'll have Mason Williams out for our full interview. Helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us here on the Paul Leslie Hour. On this episode, we have a very, very interesting person. Mason Williams is joining us. He is internationally famed as a composer, guitarist, and recording artist. His iconic hit instrumental song, Classical Gas, remains one of the most well-known and beloved instrumental songs in history. Also a television writer, one of the creative brains behind the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, Mason Williams is also a published author of poems and prose, a conceptual artist, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Mason Williams, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Paul. Great to be talking to you and to your listeners. It's an honor. All right. So we listed all of these different things that you have done and you continue to do. And it makes me wonder, do you have an overall driving force in terms of your creative spirit? What gets you to want to make things? Let's see. Oh, I was always, I guess the roots of this goes back to my father and I. When I was in grade school, my father and I used to create things together. We made kites. We did uh, braiding. And we did uh, built model airplanes and ships and uh, did wood carving and wood burning. And so he instilled in to me, this idea that being creative was an expression of uh, who you are and uh, sort of a way to share your interests with other people. And my friend Ed Ruscher was, uh, I met him in 1947. He went on to become a very famous artist, and he was really impressed with all those things I did with my father, and that was kind of the beginning of a lifelong relationship I've had with him. So I would say that, you know, for parents and brothers and sisters, encourage your members of your family to be creative because it's a great relationship to have with friends and family. Can you recall your earlier musical loves? Yeah, let's see. Oh, you know, when you're growing up, you listen to the radio. There wasn't TV to speak of back in the in the late 40s. And so you were listening to the radio, and I would say that as a kid, you kind of liked the goofy songs, like uh, the Woody Woodpecker song. <laughs> you know, that, that's the Woody Woodpecker song. And I remember one one in, in particular was the, the Sow song. That was pretty goofy. And I remember liking a song called Cow Cow Boogie, 
that one was really great. Oh, I remember the first song I sort of fell in love with was uh, a song called Amour. I had a an aunt. This was when I lived in Abilene, Texas. It was, I was like five or six years old, something like that. And this aunt, my mother's sister, Lena was her name. She listened to music all day long. And back in those days, it was 30, 33s. And I don't even know, 45. I think they were... There were 33 LPs. And she listened to sort of music all day long, and this was in her room, and she would dance around and do things and listen to music. And she, there was also a record player in the uh, living room. And she left a record on it one day, and I had watched her turn it on and put the needle carefully on the record. And when she was gone, I turned it on and put the needle on the record, and it was a song called Amour. Amour, amour, my love. Da-da-da-da. It was like a romantic song from probably Mexico or South America. I'm not sure. I listened to it over and over because I knew how to put the needle back on the record, and it was quite an experience to listen to the thing you know, on the radio you hear it once, but when it's on the record player, you can play it over and over and sort of absorb the, not only the melody, but the lyric and the emotion involved in it. So that was a great first experience. I was listening to this CD that you sent me. It's a collection of various songs that you've recorded. And one of uh-huh. the things that just astounded me was you want to talk about variety. <laughs> oh yeah, I was always really interested in lots of stuff and uh and it was broad in the very beginning when you're listening, but later on I kind of focused on instrumental music because of classical gas, but with all of the different types of music that you have pursued, would it uh-huh. be possible to say what genre would be the closest to your heart? I would say I don't think of myself as being very good about writing pop songs, pop lyrics. The most, the best pop song that I've written was the one I wrote for my artist friend, Ed Ruscha, called Eddie, I'm Ready for Love. And in that case, I just went back and analyzed the songs of the, you know, the, from the hits of the 50s, the Platters and all those great groups back then and decided to make a song that was sort of an update of that style. So one of the things that I recall is that there were a lot more instrumental hits back in the 50s than there are now. In fact, I would say that instrumental hits are a thing of the past. Classical gas was kind of the tail end of that whole idea. There were a lot of them back then. Love is Blue and uh, some others as well grazing in the grass and uh, there were others as well but now i don't believe that instrumental hits are a part of the contemporary mix it's it's all songs so i was like i say was fortunate to be the on the tail end of interest in that why do you suppose that that is the case because i would have to agree with you you don't hear of as many instrumental songs being released today? One of the things that I thought about was the fact that one of the great things about instrumental songs is that, oh, people, I have a a song called Sunflower, and that's on that CD I sent you, and people would say to me, you know, when I hear that song, I think of of a rainy day on a street in Paris, or I think of some, you know, in other words, the individual was putting their pictures to the music. But these days, they put the pictures to the music for you. So they've sort of taken that away from the listener that, that uh, you know, not entirely, but by and large, the selling of the hits, is part, uh, the video is part of making the song into a, a, a recognizable hit. But back then... People used to create their own images to go with the music. Sort of the music was a soundtrack to their imagination. 
You're listening to our interview with guitarist and composer Mason Williams. We're going to play an excerpt of his song, McCall. This is classical guitar with a bluegrass band, recorded in 2005. It's kind of interesting that we're talking today because it was just the other day. The actress, Patricia Arquette, she wrote on Twitter. She asked all of her followers. She said, Uh what is your favorite instrumental song? Uh (laughs) And there were probably, I would guess there was a couple thousand responses. But classical gas came up again and again. It was that and sleepwalk. But I would say Classical Gas was number one. Uh-huh. Are you surprised by the success of that song? Well, I mean, you know, you know, you never know what's really going to happen, but it just caught the people's imagination. Oh, there are a lot of reasons for it. The energy level was really great. And uh, one of the things that I have heard from fans was that they liked to orchestrate their own creative endeavors or their own moments by listening to it. So it had a way of being a soundtrack for the, for individual achievements, I guess you'd say. So I think that's one of the things that, uh, that contributed to the success was that it also got a lot of airplay from all over the country. And, Back in those days, the DJs could program their own shows and took delight in uh, putting on what they liked. And I don't know if that's true anymore. It seems like that a lot of shows are pre-programmed from somewhere else. And the, the DJ is just kind of playing the song list that they are sent. So it was a more creative for the individual DJ back in those days. And 
Oh, classical gas started, I think it was some DJ in, I can't remember exactly where it was. It might have been down south, but uh, and they were all listening to each other and what they were playing. And so DJs from different parts of the country picked it up. And back then, a DJ, I remember somebody told me that he would play classical gas at least once every hour for all, all the time he was on the air. And so if somebody really liked something, they could really help promote it through airplay. Now we are going to play a portion of one of the most famous instrumental songs of all time, recorded and composed by Mason Williams. Here is Classical Gas. time I was watching a warm-up, kind of like a sound check, for Peter Mayer, who is mostly known for being the guitarist for Jimmy Buffett. But Yes, right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he was using your song, Classical Gas, to kind of get the sound of the, the room. And mm -hmm. his concert was great, but I have to say, it was, it was really cool, the take that he did on Classical Gas. I would like to know from you, uh -huh. Who do you think has done the best interpretation of something that you've written, not just limited to classical guess? Oh, boy. Uh, well, uh, I've got about three or four hundred recordings of classical guess that I know of, and they're all really unique. And uh, that's one of the things that Duke Ellington, I was reading about something, and he said, Whatever you do, you've got to make it your own. So that means that you've got to take the the tune, but also add things to it or play it in a certain ways that reflect what your interests are. And so I think all of these various versions of it, people have done that. And I used to send out emails about different versions of it that I'd hear from people. And I have... Like I say, I have at least 300 versions of it on a hard drive that I have, and it's international. I mean, Christopher Parkening, a classical player, said he plays all over the world, and he said he's never been anywhere in the world that somebody didn't ask him if he knew how to play classical gas, or he doesn't, it's not really part of his repertoire. It's, he's real classical, but... He can play it, believe me. And 
So I think it was the the uh, radio just went everywhere, and also now the video is going everywhere, and there are a lot of videos of people playing my tune. Tommy Emmanuel is uh, a big proponent of classical gas, and uh, he plays it in his concerts, and he's very great about sending me versions of it that he that he does. And boy, I'd have to a list of three hundred people that take some time to go through all that but oh it's been you know it's harp it's piano it's bagpipes <laughs> <laughs> it's everything you can think of and so i think that's the real the thing that i really like is the fact that it inspired them to make it their own they stay true to the composition but they they have their little devices compositionally that they use and they're all quite different and like i say i I have a collection of all these things, and I got it. it would be, oh, there's all kinds of styles there. You know, it's South American, it's Mexican, it's you know, lots, lots of people in, in uh, from England and France and Switzerland, you name it. It's all over the world, and so that's a real compliment that people have made it their own and put their cultural influences into their versions of it. At the beginning of the interview, I was listing some of the things that you've done, and I didn't go into all of them, but one of them that I think is pretty interesting is you were also a stand-up comedian. Oh, no, not really. I uh, I didn't really do uh, stand-up comedy. What I did is I, you had to have humor in your uh, show, and as a folk singer, that's one of the first things that you learn. When I first started performing i was playing folk music and folk music back and this was in the in the 58 59 and 60s <laughs> that's back there what people would do is they'd go over to somebody's house and they'd kind of sit around in a circle and they would you know somebody would sing a song and then the next guy next to him would play something on the banjo or sing a song and play guitar or maybe dulcimer different instruments and uh, the first club I played in was a club called The Gourd in Oklahoma City. And what we sort of did was just put what was a living room on stage. And uh, we kind of, you know, uh, there'd be five or six people on stage and somebody would do something. And the next guy sitting next to us would, or a girl, the guy or girl next to us would do something and kind of pass it around like that. And, but we had one guy that came to play with us who, was an actor and he was more of a showbiz oriented person and he kept insisting that in order to have a really a great his name was Johnny Horton not the famous country singer Johnny Horton but he was at part of the band at the Gore and he played banjo and guitar but he insisted that in order to to be commercial you've got to have an act and so we would develop patter to introduce songs and Patter was a place where you could explore being uh, funny. You know, you'd write funny intros to songs or you'd have funny bits and what. And I would say that that was the beginning of writing uh, comedy, was writing comedy to be part of your act on stage. What would you say brings a laugh from you? What kind of things crack you up? Mm, boy, unfortunately, I don't find myself laughing that much anymore. Uh, which I miss, but, oh, I was, uh, when you're growing up, you tend to, you know, Jonathan Winters was, I thought he was pretty funny, and I heard him on record even before I saw him on television, and uh, there were lots of uh, uh, comedians that were on, uh, you know, Milton Berle and various, various people that you would, you know, the the show of shows and all those variety shows that were back then, you'd see. And there were a lot of comedy guests on Ed Sullivan and shows like that. So, And Steve Allen, you know, The Tonight Show. And so you you basically were not only hearing what they were saying, but seeing them in action and all those gestures and facial expressions and things were... were uh, really added to the quality of performance. Spike Jones was really an amazing person. I actually saw him 
live in performance in Oklahoma City back in, gosh, I don't know, it was in the in the early 50s or, or late 40s, something like that. And he just put on a great show then. I used to listen to him on the on the radio, Spike Jones. I still remember a joke he did. Funny, but I'm in the mood for love. And then he'd go, funny, but who's funny, but? <laughs> <laughs> So he, he anyway, and, and he was able to function, in it. and he was actually one of the first people to put a, sh- a show together that had sets and lighting and music and other acts, so he was a real precursor of the kinds of shows that somebody like Madonna or all those people eventually took on the road, you know, with the... Uh, that's a big deal these days with uh, the stage shows and all the lights and lasers and smoke and fire, you name it, and dancers and whatnot. But he was one of the first people that that took a, a whole couple of truckloads of sets and lights and stars and costumes and things like that. So he was a, a, a real hero, you might say, of the, of the whole industry. So how did you get involved with the Smothers Brothers? Let's see, it started, specifically, it started in 1964. I was a folk singer playing the Troubadour, a club in L.A., and Tommy's sister, Sherry, was a waitress there. And Tommy would would ask her, he'd say, Anybody coming through there that uh, would be of interest to us, you know, that has funny songs or f- funny patter or funny ideas. And and so she said, well, there's this one guy named Mason Williams that seems to get a lot of laughs on his comedy songs. And he does these dim poems that people seem to like. And she said, you might want to check him out. So. Tommy called me up and invited me up to his house, and I spent a whole weekend with him playing demos and talking to him about uh, the comedy ideas and things that I had were writing. And about a week later, I recorded an album with him, and they they used about five of my songs on the album. It was the oh boy, I can't remember the exact name of it, but and that's. Just the way it is when you get older. It's called sometimes disease. Sometimes you remember it. Sometimes you don't. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I worked on several albums of those of theirs. And what Tommy liked about my material, he says, "You got to remember that we don't do jokes. It's our relationship that's funny. So what we're looking for is pieces of material that can cause us to." sort of get into our sibling rivalry bickering. So they liked these uh, little shorter songs that I did. Here's an example. Isn't life beautiful? Isn't life gay? Isn't life the perfect thing to pass the time away? So singing that little song, and then Tommy went off on a a, uh, sort of a take on the meaning of life and things like that. And... Oh, they were, he liked these little short songs, and I wrote a bunch of them, and they worked well for them in their show, and they also worked well for them on on TV because they weren't too long, and basically they would start a whole dialogue between Tom and Dick. I should interject something that I've realized over the years about Tom and Dick. You know, they they were a duo, a comedy duo, and... The original comedy people were individuals who were funny, and most of the humor evolved around the individual slipping on the ice or stepping on a rake or bumping into something and falling down and whatnot. And uh, that was, you know, that was Charlie Chaplin, all that. That was the individual. But later became Laurel and Hardy, and they became a team, and... Laurel and Hardy started this idea. There's a, a smart one and kind of a, a simpleton or a not exactly a dumb one, but someone who's, who's, and that was a little bit the relationship of Tom and Dick is that Tommy was the funny one and Dick was the straight man. My take on them was, well, that went on to be an important aspect of 
every duo on TV, whether it was Sonny and Cher. Cher was a smart one. Sonny was sort of left of center. And Captain and Tennille, and they were like that. And and I don't know if there's any duos on television anymore. I can't say that I, I see variety on television anymore. But I think the best take I had on, on the Smothers Brothers, and this would apply to other people as well, is that their show was a magic act. And the thing about a magic act, it has two elements. It has the magic or the illusion, and it has the magician. And you basically don't have one without the other because the magician is the guide through the tricks or through the illusions. And so I I said, well, to me, Tommy is the magic, but Dick is the magician. And you could apply that to Stephen Colbert, you know, when... When he's doing his monologue, he's both the magician and the magic. But when he's as a guest, they're the magic and he's the magician. So I thought that was an interesting insight that that uh, shows you know variety shows our people on television are uh, basically a magic act with the magic and a magician. We are going to take a little pause from our interview with Mason Williams to play an excerpt of this song entitled Fresh Fish. This is his bluegrass band recording, a song he wrote with Steve Keith, recorded in 1984. Let's hear it. Was the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, was that where you encountered Steve Martin? Uh, yes. Steve and I used to play shows together in L.A. The Troubadour was one. The Ice House was a big one. And one of the things that I had the unique opportunity to do is that I was good friends with Rush Jaguar, who became a member of the association. But in the early days, he was the light man at the Ice House. And I would sit in the in the light. I'd go out there every night <laughs> and stay the whole night. And uh, at least, gosh, you know, four or five, maybe six nights a week. And I'd sit in the booth and watch the acts from the booth. And I couldn't really, you couldn't talk to him because he's busy with the light cues. And so I would watch somebody like Steve Martin perform, you know, 10 times a week. And at that point, you began to, in the very beginning, you're you're laughing at their jokes, but then you began to sort of analyze what they're up to. At one point, when the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour started, Tommy Smothers came to me and he said, who would you like, of all the people you've seen perform and whatnot, who would you like to hire as a writer for the show? I said, well, there's this one guy I see all the time and have worked with even quite a bit on the Smothers Brothers show called Steve Martin. And I said, I think he'd be interesting because he not only has funny things, plays the banjo and does all these balloon tricks, and and but I think he's got a, a sort of a comedy philosophy that will develop into something really unique. And based on my suggestion, he hired... Steve Martin to be right around the show. So that was a, a and, and Steve is really gracious about remembering to other people about this when he does interviews 
he he mentions the fact that I was important to his early career, and it was really important for him because not only did he learn to write for other people, but for himself as well. And a variety show is quite an education because you you basically have to size up who you're writing for and become them. You have to think from their perspective. You, in other words, you can't just interject your own sense of humor into... Yeah, I mean, you, you sort of do, but you basically have to analyze who they are and try to create material that would come from them. I remember Jack Benny sitting down with me for about two hours once talking to me about a piece I'd written for him. And he was telling me where I'd hit the mark and where I didn't. And it sort of helped me understand how you get into the perspective of who you're writing for. And all those people that you worked with, it was quite an education. You learned not only about how to write comedy, but you know what were, what were individuals' perspectives on the music they played. And there was the dancing. You know, there was that was the great thing about the Smothers Brothers is you were free to play in any aspect of the show. You could be funny. You could be artistic. You could be topical, political, and. That's what I thought was great was that Tommy was gracious about allowing the writers on the show to explore their own interests. Do you think that television has declined in quality? Oh boy, you know, I have a whole thing on television. I it just changed a lot and I wrote a whole book about television and oh, you know, there were lots of observations in it. But I think it just changes depending on what the interest of the of the uh, viewer is. You know, it's basically one of the things that's really different now is the idea that when you're writing for somebody back then, you didn't have the chance to look at past performances because of the Internet. You can look at old movies. You can look at shows they've done. So you get a a broader education about the kind of things they do. So it'd be, in one sense, easier to write for people today because of, of the Internet and uh, the ability that you can look at at shows, you know, or movies that they've done. And back then, you were basically just having to read what you were getting about people's careers. And so variety would be much better now than because of the in, influx of of the videos and television, you know, the YouTube and all these various things together. So I I can't say that I watch too much that is current. Like I didn't watch the Grammys because I don't know who any of the artists are. I'm not very much tuned into it. You you tend to, Willie Nelson would be about the only person on there that I would (laughs) recognize. I mean, not to disparage what they're doing, it's just that the nature of the of the medium changes dramatically over the years. It'd be hard to say. Television means, you know, there are a lot of people who plug into their favorites. Like if they like Jeopardy, they don't want to miss it. Or if they like, I thought the Ed Sullivan show was great because it was a a chance to explore what was going on in the whole world because you had acts from Italy and France and Germany, Spain, you name it. And the American artists were put in the context of that international compliment. So I think it's a shame that there isn't a, an Ed Sullivan show now that explores what's going on in other cultures. Uh, I think other cultures know more about what's going on in the United States than we do in theirs. And so I think it, that was a, a great thing to for the Ed Sullivan show is that it was a real broad reporter's perspective on the entertainment industry. Interesting. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you there. I wanted to know about your living in Oregon. What brought you out to that part of the country? Let's see. Oh, I guess one of the, well, I grew up. I was actually raised in uh, Texas and Oklahoma. I would say you don't remember too much about your really early years, and those are the ones in Texas. Fortunately, there's a few photos of of me in a front or backyard that that I go, oh, yeah, 
But, you know, you don't remember. One of the interesting things I learned is that you don't remember those early, early things because you haven't developed a language to to form the language in. And But as you get older, you develop a language to form the language in. And also, every time you remember it, you're, you're re-enhancing that memory with language. My folks were divorced. Like I say, my father and my mother, my mother lived in Texas. My father moved to, like I say, I grew up in Texas, but my father moved to Oklahoma City in 1947. So I was eight years old. And my mother came out to Oregon at that same time. And this was like the fourth grade. And so I spent the next couple of years in Oregon with my mother and my stepfather. And I would have to say that uh, I benefited from having two completely different places, but two completely different inspirations. My mother was very creative. She was always painting and doing uh, sewing and doing main trees, they were called. And, and we did some uh, pottery together and... So she inspired me to be creative, and my father had a great work ethic, so he always said, whatever you're going to do, you got to work hard at it. And I think I benefited from those two perspectives. And the other thing about Oklahoma City is that it was a big city, and so you had those influences. But in Oregon, I actually lived in the woods, and so I had nature really as my best friend, you might say. And I think those... Those two influences helped me through my through my creative life, and in nineteen uh, about nineteen seventies somewhere in there seventy one, I decided to give up on Hollywood and move back to Oregon. And oh, part of it was just burnout, you know, from writing television all day, writing songs and recording all night, and trying to party what little bit of time there was in between. So I just decided to give it up and I came back to Oregon to be what I call a regional artist as opposed to being a Hollywood artist. And my philosophy was you want to plug into wherever you are. And if you're in Hollywood, you're plugging into what's going on there. But if you're in Oregon, you're plugging into the environment and you're plugging into local music scene and people you work with here. So but I always had a, a foothold in Hollywood anyway and L.A. And so I was, it was great to lead a kind of a double existence. But I liked Oregon because of the the quality of life and the, the region that was inspired by the environment. My uh, river show, that was all about rivers, and that was a product of living in Oregon. My Christmas show that I did was about involving local talent and all. I would play shows that had 250 kids on stage with me and my band, and they were all the way from sixth graders all the way up through high school, and it was great to not only have them be part of the show, but for them to experience good musicianship from the band and also good sound and just to the kids used to say to me that they really thought it was a unique experience to be part of a show that was so professionally done. And I had learned all that basically from television. I knew what good sound was and staging. And and I would say that all of my concerts were basically like TV shows because I had guests and and we would work together. And, and that's what the Smothers Brothers were known for is not only having guests where they sing their songs, but also Tom and Dick would do something with them. And so, you know, I guess you'd say that you're always the sum total of all of your artistic endeavors. So the fact that I wrote television had an impact on my concerts. And I would say that I, since I wrote books and art that had an impact on my television, since I played music, that had a lot to do with, uh, I developed a lot of music for the Smothers Brothers. And if there were parodies to write, I usually, my friend Alan Bly and my partner, we usually wrote the parodies. And so it was, I guess, 
it was a unique opportunity to explore the the creative influences of all these different people and all these various types of things to do. I even could suggest dance number concepts if I wanted to, and or videos. I had one of the earliest videos of all time on the show. It was people can watch it on YouTube. It's called Three Thousand Years of Art, and it's a one of the things I used to do was I would go to sort of avant-garde film festivals that were at arty film houses there in L.A. Ed Rochet and I would go to these, and I remember seeing this one film where the where the it had 2,500 images in three minutes, and that was like 12 a second. So you you saw you know, all these images and. So it's always uh, bringing things from traveling around L.A. and and seeing art things and avant-garde movie houses and movies from Europe and whatnot. And and Tommy used to call me the great gleaner because I was always traveling around L.A. gleaning things from clubs and movies and performances of all kinds and and talking him and bringing them to the show. Interesting. Maybe this is a good place to insert this. There's this book that you sent me of of basically all the different projects that you've done. And one of the very interesting things is the sunflower. Sunflower, yeah. Well, that was an that was an uh, my friend Ed Rocher, who's a very famous artist and for your listeners they they could look him up on the internet, I'm sure. And there was just a big article about him in the LA Times. We've stayed in touch since the very beginning. He was doing art projects and I decided to do some art projects myself just because he made it seem like it was fun to do and challenging to do. And so I decided that, well, I'm going to draw a sunflower and I'm going to I'm going to use the real sun as the blossom and have a sky writer draw a stem and leaves connecting it to the earth. And so I actually did this. I actually went out into the desert, sort of, I guess you would say, northeast of L.A., Apple Valley, I think that was the area out there, and did a lot of research on it. And I hired the sky writer that I hired was the guy that invented sky writer some 60 years earlier than that. He thought that he hadn't retired, but this intrigued him enough that he was willing to come out of retirement and do this. And so uh, he hired a guy that was a World War II pilot, and the, man, the guy showed up in his uh, helmet and leather jacket and silk scarf and took off. And we did the sunflower, and you had to do things in at a time before the before the uh, wind came up because the early morning was the best less time because as soon as you have the cold air and the warm air mixing that's when you start to get breezes because the you know the 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 cold air starts to go under the warm air and that's when you have movement so I did it real early in the morning to avoid the wind blowing the whole thing away it still only lasted about 40 seconds, and I I spent my entire life savings on about five grand on it, and so I went broke doing my first project, but I never got a film of it because I didn't realize you couldn't photograph the sun without the right kind of filters. So, But I did get that photograph from a, a guy at CBS who came out. He was intrigued by it, and he photographed that, that picture, and so... Uh, that's uh, I did write that one song, Sunflower, about it. That's on the CD I sent you. And my other big project was the life-size picture of a Greyhound bus. It was uh, 36 feet long and 11 feet high. And, oh, it was part of a show at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. And all these were influenced by my friend Ed Rocher. And he just, you know, made it seem like being creative was just part of your natural lifestyle and I did a bunch of books just because of his influence I don't know how many it was like 16 or something like that different books and there were other books too that were music books and so 
always inspired by the works that your your friends do, and, and I was fortunate to be around Ed and all, all kinds of other really great artists there in L.A. You know, they um, all the things I learned from them, I took into television, I took into my songwriting, I took into performance, and so you're really, like I say, like cross-training, all these various interests are going to show up in everything you do sooner or later. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, the sunflower thing, you gained some things from that. You you got the song, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. and you got the photograph, but, you know, it was your entire life savings that you put into that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's just, that's just the way it was, you know, and boy, I didn't have a lot of this was done in 67, and I just started writing for the Smothers Brothers, and so it picked up right after that, so I didn't suffer too long for it, but I had to hire and, you know, a cameraman and the skywriter and all these various people, so it, it, took, it took everything that I had saved up, but I started getting well right after that so it wasn't that big a disaster but anyway you always wanted to spend everything you had on what you, what you were most interested in doing next <laughs> well on that note with all the different things that you have accomplished with all the different uh -huh. things that you've created what would uh -huh. you say you're the most proud of oh i would say well i would say it's the fact that People embraced classical gas and my other compositions. Classical gas was uh, unique, really, in that it. I've had so many people tell me that it was classical gas that inspired them to learn to play fingerstyle guitar. And uh, like I say, people orchestrated their own lives with it. But I would, I would say that is the thing I'm most proud of was that it inspired them to take up the guitar and. In the process of learning classical gas, they, of course, learn all this other great music written for the guitar, whether it's pop or classical. Or I didn't think of myself as being a blues player as because I was more interested in folk and classical. And I used to call classical gas a, a um, pop classical hybrid because it was sort of made out of those, those interests. You know, it was, uh, you know, you... I used to say, well, you know, if Mozart and Beethoven were around, they'd be writing for the radio. And <laughs> just so I thought, well, why not? You know, you you learn so much from those classic composers that I studied in music school. One of the other things I thought was interesting was that uh, I remember reading that Beethoven had rewritten his first symphony about a hundred times. And he remarked that, well, you know, when you're young, you have great ideas, but you don't really know how to develop them as well yet. So as he got older, he knew how to take these themes he'd created and make more out of them. And so I thought, well, boy, that there's nothing wrong with rewriting things as you improve in terms of, of uh, your chops, I guess you'd say, as a composer. I never... I never rewrote Classical Gas. I just thought it was okay the way it was originally. But... I have a lot of other songs that I I did that with, and that's because you you actually get better about how to develop them and you know compositional elements and arrangement concepts. We're going to play a little bit of that song "Sunflower" that Mason Williams was discussing earlier. That was inspired by a very grand idea and a dream that he lived. I hope you enjoy. This is quite a melody that Mason wrote. Thank you. 
Well, Mason Williams, I thank you so much for giving us this interview. My pleasure, and I hope I contributed to people's understanding of what I do, but also inspired them to pursue their own work. And if they enjoy it as much as I did, that's a blessing. So thanks very much. And, you know, I I was very fortunate to work with pop artists and bluegrass country and bluegrass artists. My uh, local Christmas shows, my river show, the river show was really great because I I had to explore music from 1717 all the way up to Talking Heads in, in 1985. And so I learned so much from that show just about history and arranging and being outside of yourself and just uh, embracing this whole dimension of the, all those songs written about rivers. Every composer, every writer, every painter has done some work about the river somewhere. Okay. All right. And all the listeners, they can check out MasonWilliams-Online.com. MasonWilliams-Online.com. Right, and I've got a few things on YouTube, not too many, but they can check those out as well. Well, Mason Williams, thank you very much, and I wish you a wonderful day. All right, thanks. I've enjoyed it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you want to support the mission of the Paul Leslie Hour, you can do so. Just go to patreon.com slash the Paul Leslie Hour. I will send you all on your way with a song composed and performed by Mason Williams, our special guest. This is Saturday Night at the World. I hope you enjoyed this show. Until next time. (laughs) ¶¶